0: But maximizing value is only one of the things that our clients are looking to do. And there are various qualitative elements that go into a great deal alongside just the financial outcome. And we can help, our our role is to help our clients weigh the pros and cons of different paths and different outcomes. But ultimately, they are the ones who decide.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Munchaus. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, Today, I am talking with and learning from Daniel Domburger. Daniel's the managing director at Arrowpoint Advisory, who were, about two years ago, acquired by Rothschilds. I've done a bit of work for Daniel and his team in the past, and one of the things that struck me was the people I was speaking to in the firm to a man and woman said that their business is about maximizing the return for the entrepreneurs whose businesses they sell to get the most for that entrepreneur, for their life's work. And they said that when they weren't being watched, when the, when the bosses weren't in the room, it was something I felt very deeply that they felt about the work that they did. And we're constantly working with clients who go on to exit. We've had a number of clients who've, who've, who've sold. And we've got clients who we work with at, at the moment who are currently going through the process of an exit. So I thought it'd be great to get Daniel on and to talk from the point of view of corporate finance advice. Most of the work they do is helping entrepreneurs sell their business. So what is it? How do you set the business up? How do you choose an advisor? What you might look for? Is it worth doing your own due diligence early? What are some of the pitfalls along the way? And as ever, getting some great book recommendations from a great guest. I really enjoyed chatting to Daniel again. I'm sure you will too.
0: So I'm Daniel Donberger. I'm a managing director at Arrowpoint Advisory, which is the growth and entrepreneurs team of the investment bank Rothschild & Co. Um, so I help primarily entrepreneurs, owner managers, corporates, and investors with M&A. So with buying and selling companies or raising investment for them.
1: And how's the market at the moment?
0: Uh, the market at the moment is very buoyant, um, very active. Values are high and volumes are high.
1: Why is the market particularly? I mean, it's, it has been f- for all the time you and I have known each other been quite, quite an active market, but more so than usual?
0: Um, this certainly feels more active than previous cyclical peaks that we've seen to the extent that you can attribute it to any single factor, um, there is just a huge volume of liquidity out there. Central banks globally have been, been printing more and more money. Um, in parallel, corporate balance sheets uh, are ever greater, You know, heavily pregnant with huge cash balances, looking for a way to deploy them. And the private equity investors in particular have raised more and more and larger and larger funds um, in a, an accelerating cycle. So the period of time between the raising of individual funds has actually shortened. So the funds are getting larger. There are more of them being raised more quickly by more houses. And that, that huge volume of of funding from the corporates and the investors looking for a home is driving both activity and valuations.
1: And is there any change of the flow of capital into the UK post-Brexit from the U S or from Europe?
0: we haven't seen any systematic changes of that sort at all. Um, Immediately in the aftermath of the referendum, so going back several years, um, there was a lot of talk about US acquirers seeking a presence in Germany as a European footprint, where they might have more naturally turned to the UK historically, um, now looking at uh, the need for a presence within the European Union. Actually, very few of them ended up following through on that, particularly in the technology sector, um, and the uh, volumes of US acquisitions into the UK bounced back very, very quickly. Um, there, there have been minor dips and surges as some of the news has become more or less intense, um, particularly around the actual departure from the EU when we when that went into effect, and then we went into the transition period, and the transition period ended. Um, but there's not really been a, a structural or systematic change in those volumes from the U- US into the UK.
1: Does it continue for forever?
0: It, it, is, a, it is a cycle. There, there will be a point at which it turns. It's very, very difficult to foresee what that will be. Um, there's certainly nothing that we see on the horizon that suggests the correction is imminent. And what we saw in, in previous downturns is that the the volume slowed down very, very quickly. Valuations actually remained quite high for quite a period of time. Um, and what, what seems really to have happened is that if you like the bottom bottom third or half by quality of the market ceased to transact. But the those transactions, those acquisitions or investments where there was a very strong rationale for pursuing them in the first place, good, good underlying thesis, good macro fundamentals, good synergy case, good growth opportunity, those continued to happen and continue to happen actually at very compelling valuations. Um, it was less attractive, second tier, poor quality businesses that simply couldn't find a buyer or an investor at all. That was the first characteristic
1: of the market turning. So if, you're, if you've are if you got a quality business, you're less likely to be impacted. If you're unsure of the quality of your business, now's a great time to be transacting.
0: Well, it, it depends. I mean, we often say that the stars have to align and strength of the market is only one of the one of the stars that you are seeking to line up. So the business has to be in the right shape, the right position to be attractive to an acquirer or backable by an investor. The the shareholders need to be minded to do something um, because for many shareholders, for many companies, there's no need actually to do anything, particularly if the business is growing well, profitable, throwing off cash. Um, there, There needs to be an appropriate management solution. Um, particularly if if founders uh, want to step back there needs to be a team ready to step up and take the reins from them um, either backable by an investor or able to fulfill a kind of divisional management role within a large corporate structure um, so so getting all of those lined up along with strong financial performance along with good growth prospects and no bumps in the road you, know, you can't get them all um, if you can get four out of five you're probably doing reasonably well. Um, we did see earlier this year a rush of businesses coming to market that were insufficiently prepared and seeking to take advantage of buoyant market conditions. Um, But the the groundwork hadn't been laid, the business wasn't in the right shape, the team wasn't necessarily ready, and a number of those simply failed to transact. So yes, activity in the market is very helpful, um, but it's certainly not, not the only thing, it's possibly not even the most important thing if you can get the other parts lined up.
1: And so, with no downturn on the horizon, at what point do you or other firms like you wish to get involved? With you know, if I if you're the entrepreneur listening to you here chatting to me, when should you get should you get an advisor? Should you is it possible to sell your business without an advisor?
0: Um, it, it's certainly possible. I, I... Because going through a transaction is, is something that is critically relevant to all of our clients, but only at certain points in their trajectory or the business's development. So you don't necessarily need to have someone on retainer for 10 years until you are ready to transact. But as and when you start to receive sufficient inbound approaches that you're contemplating doing something, or you decide independently that you want to pursue an exit, a fundraise, a transaction of some sort, actually taking some... Proper advice from people who do that all day every day um, is probably a very sensible thing to do. Um, If you look at the private equity investors who are most active in part of the market, um, they often say that they would love to buy unadvised, although they also say that they hate it because it means they have to do a lot of the work that a sell-side advisor might otherwise do. But if you look at the exits, so when, when they come to sell the businesses that they have invested in, it is vanishingly unlikely that they would choose to do so without taking proper advice. If you are contemplating (laughs) doing it and the guys who do it for a living take advice when they're doing it, to my mind, that suggests that you might want to contemplate it too. Equally, most of our clients are entrepreneurs. They've got where they've got to and they've built what they've built by going against the grain, by bucking the received wisdom, doing things on their own and in their own way. And in that kind of context, some of them do decide they don't need to take the help and advice of a, of a professional for this.
1: If you don't take advice, are there any top tips or? Well, I think the, the key
0: thing is that particularly for entrepreneurs, you know, who a lot of them love exploring new fields, love <laughs> conquering new challenges. You could look at this and say, well, this is the next thing that I'm going to learn how to do. Then if you think about the best and highest use of of your time and your energy, is it learning a variety of rarefied semi-financial terms, a lot of jargon, um, so that you can use those terms of art in the discussion and the negotiation? Or should you leverage the knowledge and experience of people who use those as the tools of their trade all day, every day, which to me makes the comparison to a lawyer very opposite? But I think the hardest part is that a lot of this stuff devolves to first principles, And the market norm, and the reasons for doing things in a particular way, evolves all the time. So if you're not abreast of the way some of these things have evolved, the way some of these things have changed, then it's quite hard to understand the rationale that's being presented to you by the other side. It tends to make you instinctively suspicious that they are trying to get something over, you know, trying to get something over you that that you don't necessarily understand. A lot of it is quite abstruse and technical. Um, and the intersection of commercial judgment and technical accounting treatment. Um, So having someone who can have difficult conversations for you, having someone who can explain to you, I know it sounds unreasonable, but it's not because, and you can trust them with that because, because they are on your side and not on the other side. Those are sort of qualitative factors that just mean having someone else in your corner is helpful and additive.
1: How often does a deal get done in three months?
0: So, uh, the answer is always, it depends. And in this case, it depends on what you mean by get done in three months. So, if, if you mean launch to the market and close the deal within three months, that can happen, but is heavily, heavily reliant on the amount of preparation that's done beforehand. So, for example, if you do vendor due diligence, which is you commission the due diligence on your own business before you go to market, that enables you to close a deal much, much faster than if you are waiting for the buyer or the investor to do the due diligence at their own pace and their own expense during a period of exclusivity.
1: And if you're, if you were thinking maybe the time horizon is 2022, 2023, and you thought, well, I might do vendor due diligence now so that I know what I need to fix later on, who Who would do that due diligence? Would your accountancy firm do that? Or are there other specialist firms that just do vendor due diligence?
0: Vendor due diligence maps on on several different areas. So you'll get financial, commercial, legal, and technical. And depending on the the business, there may be other specific areas that merit a a review by potentially another firm. So the financial is is done by accountants. Um, The risk of, of bringing an accountant in now is something that you're planning to do later in 2022 or even 2023, is that with every month that goes by, it gets more and more out of date. So if you were contemplating commissioning something now on the financial side, it would probably be what we would call a red flag report or a health check. Get the accountants in, review the systems, the processes, the availability of the underlying data, and in a sense, your readiness and the problems that that due diligence exercise might throw up then you've got a period of time, six, nine, 12 months to address all of that. And then you can commission your VDD on the financial side before you, immediately before you go to market. The legal side tends to be much less critical. Although in the technology space, areas you might need to look at are your licensing terms, your use of open source components, and you know particularly around data and data handling. If you're doing anything consumer facing, they're getting the keys and Cs right So particularly then if you're going to have to go back to partners or customers and ask them to sign up to different T's and C's, knowing that well in advance of a transaction is very, very helpful because if you are suddenly bounced into having to go to your major customers and ask them to sign different terms when you're under pressure from a buyer or an investor in the heat of a transaction, that is incredibly stressful and likely to end poorly. Um, Whereas if you can do it gradually, sensitively over time, that will work out much better. So again, having a a review from the legal side so that you know what it is you need to fix would probably be helpful. On the commercial side, it's an overview of the market. You probably don't need to do that very much before initiating your own transaction. I think strategically, you might find it helpful. It might identify areas in which you've decided to pursue growth and opportunity. And a commercial diligence report often includes customer surveys and feedback that are often operationally very, very helpful. Um they identify areas where, where you're satisfied or things could be done better.
1: Thank you. and I guess I guess reasonably rarely you're you've also been on the other side of of late.
0: <laughs> we do some by side work, and it's well, it's an important part of the intellectual challenge of the whole thing to be able to navigate to the processes that people like us are putting in place for buyers and investors to navigate.
1: Well, now I was thinking the sale of, because you weren't always part of Rothschild.
0: Oh, I see. Um, Yeah, so we were were acquired by Rothschild um, almost exactly two years ago now um, because they they saw very explicitly there was a part of the market um, that probably needed a slightly different approach to getting exceptional outcomes for their clients, Mm -hmm. but where their clients very explicitly had Needs so particular in particular corporate clients with um, transactional needs in the lower mid market, um, but also particularly in the technology space. Looking at how quickly some of the businesses in the sector can grow, a recognition on the part of the firm that that building relationships early, when when those companies were arguably too small for a full scale global investment bank with a thousand bankers and fifty offices in forty something countries, but being able to help them earlier was an important part
1: what size businesses are lower mid-market
0: um so the answer there is also it depends but loosely speaking um, depending on who who you talk to up to 100 million pounds of value or 200 million million pounds of value
1: Mm -hmm. that kind of range okay and you're right businesses can get to there or from there very very quickly if they're if if they're in a fast-growing segment of the market
0: yeah and there's a there's a (laughs) continued frustration voiced by the the investors as well, that they find these very interesting businesses that are too small for them to back. And then within a very short period, 12, 18 months, they have in some sense outgrown the investment remit of that particular private equity house. And so this consistent frustration that you blink and they're gone is driving a, a need for a very strategic and systematic change in a lot of the mid-market private equity houses that they are willing to entertain things earlier than they might have been, write smaller checks than they might
1: have been. Um, what's the activity like in terms of technology firms in the UK listing on AIM? Because for a while it was very popular. We've had some clients, have some clients who are AIM listed.
0: Yeah, it's um, it was a very, very popular path or raising a certain type of development capital in a certain type of growth business. um, It it has become less popular, I would say. And and you, you see this mirrored to a very large extent in the US as well, where companies are remaining private for longer. And the role of the public markets in providing that relatively early stage growth capital for businesses as they scale up, that has declined. And the public markets are now much more of an exit route for the private investors who have backed the business earlier, which creates sort of a structural question for companies that might be the right kind of size for AIM, because they can probably raise the capital from private investors without then having to go through the reporting uh, and disclosure requirements of a listing. So, you know, it it still exists, but it's much less of a volume part of the market than it was in the past. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay. What's... It's the type of thing that frustrates you because it feels like an own goal, where people want to sell their business and yet won't take your advice to do what you think will help them maximize the value. Which is in the case of the entrepreneurs that you deal with, is often their it's their life's work, and this might be the only transaction they do. What do they stubbornly refuse to take your advice on?
0: Not taking our advice or listening to our advice and then declining to act upon it is absolutely client prerogative. (laughs) Yeah, we try not to get into Lennon and McCartney style conflict with our clients, but it is often the case that you, you do your best work and the best outcome emerges from a genuinely robust debate about what the best path should be. And we have a lot of experience and a lot of insight but we would never claim to have a monopoly of wisdom so um, i mean i have a live client at the moment where objectively best advice from a valuation point of view is to wait at least 12 months probably 18 given the growth trajectory that company is on and then go to market but maximizing value is only one of the things that our clients are looking to do And there are various qualitative elements that go into a great deal alongside just the financial outcome. And we can help, our our role is to help our clients weigh the pros and cons of different paths and different outcomes. But ultimately, they are the ones who decide. I think what is frustrating is not to have one's advice listened to. I think if they're willing to listen to it, but then not follow it, that's okay. We'll we'll work with whatever we're told to at the end of the day. And that is our role.
1: Okay. And so what are the, I mean, you talked before about, uh, we've talked a little bit about due diligence and what needs to be in place and having a, what about having a management team that's investable beyond the entrepreneur and maybe what's your, you know, as entrepreneurs think about selling, you know, I, I think the the stat that I have in my head is that only a third of the entrepreneurs who sell, if there's a sort of a period of maybe two years or three years and, and there's a, um, a second payout, if you like, only 30% of them get there. How do you feel about the entrepreneurs and the advice that you give them about, you know, what's their business worth and how much of it should be upfront? And
0: so the answer to that is definitely, it depends. Um, so it it is certainly the case that a headline grabbing, overall valuation of which only a very small proportion is given to you in cash at closing is fine for bragging rights at the golf club, but, but you can't spend it unless you've earned it. Um, the, the problem, uh, particularly in tech and particularly in sort of rapid growth consumer tech, um, there's often a fixation on the proportion that is payable at closing, as opposed to over time, but that is that is more a function of how much you're getting upfront and how much is that headline, than it is an input. So it, it's that percentage is an output, not an input, in most deal structures. So the question then really becomes: How achievable are the earnout targets? Um, how helpful will your new acquirer be in helping you deliver them? Um, to what extent are the incentives genuinely aligned? Um, I, I I have known of situations where clients did not make their own outs and, and buyers have actually said, well, why would we have helped you? Because then we would just be paying you again for the value that we're delivering to you. And effectively undermining their own synergy case. Then you think about the d- divisional guys who are running the business unit into which it's been put and out of whose PL it comes, and you can find yourself in, in situations of quite intricate stakeholder in management. Um, so having a clear path fulfilling the business's potential in effect independently and maintaining control of that ability to deliver it maximizes the chance that you will make those earnout out or similar payments over time.
1: And so is your advice there to try and get some sense of what that might look like before the deal gets done?
0: Um, so a very significant proportion of our time and effort in negotiating these deal structures will be obviously maximizing the headline value maximizing the proportion of that that is then paid up front so the amount of value that passes on day one but then making sure that whatever targets are in place or the the receipt of those further tranches of consideration are clear unambiguous as easy as possible for you to achieve and as aligned as possible to everyone's sense of what what we're trying to achieve here
1: and in in your experience is my 30 percent figure am i off
0: it's way off from my client base. I can't speak for the market as a whole because these things tend not to be disclosed. Um, but I had a, I had lunch with a client last week that has just um, maxed out their earnout, just finished year three, over delivered on every metric, um, and uh, it's been a, a tremendous success story for both parties. That is much more consistent of, with my experience.
1: And what about I had I was chatting to uh, John Ratliff, who sold uh, Apple Tree Answers a few weeks ago on the on the podcast, and he he said his top tip is to ensure that due diligence isn't about renegotiation. And so, you know, unless something material comes up, but it's, you know, if you've got a heads of terms, that you agree? Then due diligence is not about renegotiation. Is that, is that something that people can do if they don't have advisors? I mean, obviously that would be your, that would be one of the things that you would be looking to do on the client's behalf if you're advising them, but is there is there something you can do in terms of structuring those heads of terms, or to make that a reality?
0: Insofar as they're not binding, it's very very difficult to create a situation where, if the buyer or the investor finds something in due diligence, they are prohibited in some sense from coming back and saying, "Look, we found this big issue; we need to have a conversation." And the problem the problem then is. If you recognize that if they find something big enough, they are always going to have, they're going to be obliged with their own duty of care to their own stakeholders, their own shareholders, their own investors, they're going to be obliged to come back and say, look, I thought we could do the deal on this basis. We've discovered this very big material thing. We can't do it in the way that we thought we could. Either that means the deal falls over, or we have to have a conversation about the value, or we have to have a conversation about the structure.
1: And I can see how that, when they're doing their own due diligence and you haven't done anything up front, you could find something that you weren't aware of or they could find something that you weren't aware of. I could see that.
0: Yeah. The worst thing is if they find something you weren't aware of. Yeah. Second, second worst is they find something they weren't aware of that you had kind of taken for granted. You don't think it's an issue at all, but it is different to what they thought they were going to find.
1: Have you got an example of that without naming names or?
0: I, I had one client where they used long-term contractors for delivery of some technology services and that predated all of the changes around IR35. A lot of it was done for lifestyle reasons on the part of the individuals. Uh, but they were really long-term, multi-year, deeply embedded, lived and breathed the culture. Um, and materials went out describing the team, the workforce, um, and making no reference to contractors at all. And then one of the one of the acquirer, or the ultimate acquirer, um, in effect, discovered as part of their due diligence that that something approaching a third of the workforce was made up of contractors rather than permanent employees. They had a very strict no-contractors rule themselves, Um, but more importantly, they felt they had been misled. So It was quite an important foundational principle for them that they they had a fully employed workforce, and then it turned out that there were about a third of them um, employed as contractors, and they felt they had been misled, and the business wasn't what they thought it was
1: but they ultimately went on to purchase. So they got offside, but you were able to get them back on track.
0: We, we basically had to onboard all of those contractors as permanent employees, and that there was a, a big legal and administrative headache to doing so. I mean, I, I've had clients forget that they that there are key open source components in the stack. Um, they, they've just worked with them for so long, they're just not thinking about it, not ready for the question, just say, no, no, of course, it's all proprietary. And then when someone lifts the lid, further down the line, they find, you know, often relatively trivial pieces, but it, it goes to confidence um, and it goes to a, a sense that you might be trying to trick people.
1: And Daniel, what what is it that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier?
0: That you were going to ask me that question? There's <laughs> always been the case that detailed preparation um, makes a huge difference to the successful outcome of a process. and In this market, it's, it's absolutely the case. But there is often a desire on the part of, our, some, of some of our clients to get out into the market sooner rather than later, for personal reasons to take advantage of market conditions, as we talked about before, and, and actually saying to those to those clients, take the take the time to do it right, to prepare well, prepare well, and then transact. With Um, I've definitely had situations in the past where I I wish I had been more forthright in delivering that advice.
1: Okay, fantastic. And uh, can I tap you for some book recommendations? They might be about buying and selling companies, but they might not be.
0: Yeah, they're they're probably not. Um, I think I I reread recently *The Gap and the Gain*, Um, and then actually, I think *The Wolf Hall* trilogy by Hilary Mantel. So Wolf Hall, Bring Up the Bodies and the Mirror and the Light um, for people willing to read historical fiction about Anne Boleyn. <laughs> I think the characterization of, of Thomas Cromwell and the way he navigates the intricacies of a, a court and a political environment while amassing a tremendous fortune along the way. Um, I think there's a lot in there for a, a good entrepreneur to enjoy. Um, and hopefully their own careers don't then end in beheading.
1: <laughs> Daniel, uh, what's one thing, if you were thinking of selling your business, what's the one thing you should do tomorrow? Well,
0: back to where we started, Dom, I, I, I think taking some advice. Um, people like us, we drink a lot of cups of coffee. We, we give a lot of free advice in the course of building relationships with our clients. And I think you, you could tomorrow call two or three investment banks, corporate finance advisors, get their sense of the landscape now and how it's likely to evolve into the future. Who who are the investors that you might want to think about? Who are the corporates who would have most to gain by acquiring your company? Um, What are the options open to you? Because we've spoken a lot about sale and investment, um, but for many businesses, a a sponsorless debt raise. Um, So so raising some debt, using that to to de-risk personally, but not losing control of the business. Um, that's a very viable option for a lot of businesses and is, um, again, relatively relatively new in our part of the market. So, The last five, 10 years has become a feature of the market in a way it wasn't before. So just getting an early sense of what the options open to you might be and, and who the players might be to talk to within each of those options. For the sake of an hour long cup of coffee, um, it seems like you, you invest very little, but you could potentially gain a great deal.
1: Daniel, thanks very much indeed for coming on today.
0: You know, absolutely, my pleasure, Tom.
1: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.